And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, May 23rd, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, we continue our series, The Worst Place to Work in the Federal Government. The Bureau of Prisons Employee Union deals with both management and the inmates. Plus, when you hear about these new military sunglasses, you'll want a pair. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the time has finally come to put the 21st Century IDEA Act, passed and signed into law in 2018, to the top of the priority list. The Office of Management and Budget plans to release much-delayed guidance to implement the law. Federal News Network's executive editor, Jason Miller, joins me now with why the timing of this guidance may actually be more beneficial for agencies. And Jason, since it does date back five years, maybe a reminder what the 21st Century IDEA Act is and what it's supposed to tell agencies to do. Well, Tom, way back in 2018, something called Congress <laughs> passed a bill called the 21st Century IDEA Act back in December, and President Donald Trump signed it into law. And the goal was pretty basic. Basically, it said improve services for citizens by implementing modern technologies. In fact, Federal Chief Information Officer Claire Martirana actually simplified what the language and the law really says and suggested agencies get ready for the implementation guidance. So if you haven't read the law, read it. It's only four pages. It, it's not like one of those gigantic things. But it's four pages of incredible guidance for the journey that most of us have been on in many organizations across government. Agencies will be required to modernize their websites and digital products, digitize forms and services, accelerate the use of e-signatures, standardize and transition to central shared services and standards. Again, federal CIO Claire Montrana speaking recently at the Federal Industry Day sponsored by the Labor Department. All right. And what took them so long? Why has the guidance been five years in coming? That's a great question that, that's hard to necessarily put your finger on. I think uh, a couple things happened. First of all, I talked to Suzette Kent, the former federal CIO, who was the federal CIO when the law got passed. And she said, listen, she goes, there was a, several things going on. You had a change of administration. You had a couple different challenges around cybersecurity time. If you remember, for instance, you remember SolarWinds issues. You remember Log4j issues. You had new people coming in who really focused on cybersecurity. So Zero Trust got the big push. And Claire told me the same thing. There's a lot of things in front of them that really don't want to say more important, but really just took their attention away, really were high up on the priority list. And listen, OMB is not a big place. There's not a lot of people who sure. just sit around and do nothing. So to get people focused on 21st Century Idea Act, I think was difficult. And then Tom, remember that pandemic thing? When that happened, everything got focused in much different directions as well. So I think it was just a confluence of issues that really caused the delay. Right. So there was a supply chain issue for guidance, and now it's going to come out. It's not out yet, but what do we know about what the guidance is going to ask agencies to do here? We know a couple things. We know it's going to address the four areas you heard Federal CIO Claire Monterano mentioned. Websites, digital signatures, digitized forums, more shared services. What OMB will require of agencies like targets or deadlines, that's still to be determined. But Monterano says she sees this bill as a roadmap for digital transformation. We have a real opportunity in government to clean up our environment because we do have a lot of uh, content that has not been retired and is in those learning models. So it really is incumbent upon us to focus on making sure that we are providing agencies, um, the, providing the public the right answer and doing it in a seamless way way as we possibly can. So we feel like the guidance is setting us all on a path so that we can share standards, right? We need 
brand standards. We need content standards, right? We, we need really implementation standards, right? And I think that's an area where I see us learning from each other, taking all of this innovation that is going on in government and leapfrogging ourselves. Marjorana says OMB is working on guidance rollout plan that's going to happen over the next few months. And then we'll actually know a bit more. We do want to make sure we're convening the right people. You know, we, we rolled out zero trust in our office last year. And I think that was the example I'm trying to hold ourselves up to, which is we got it out for public comment. We got great feedback from researchers and academics in the commercial sector, as well as our federal partners. And we made it a better policy document because of doing that work and making it a a collegial getting input that sometimes all best intentions, you can actually miss a category of something because it wasn't line itemed in the law. But we know as technologists that we actually have to think about things like open source. Like, how do we talk about that? It might not be a line item in the 21st century idea, but the community that we're operating in, that's part of our community, and we have to think about those things. Again, Claire Martorano, the federal CIO. Now, beyond the fact that the guidance actually is required by law, is it all necessary four years later since there has been so much work done on the new issues, as you say, zero trust, more cybersecurity, digital services, and so on? Tom, I think that's a question a lot of folks may be asking themselves. And you know, four years later, why do we need a guidance, especially after the pandemic, which really spurred a lot of digital transformation changes? One good example is the Labor Department. They initiated a pilot with e-signatures back during the pandemic, and now they're expanding it to other programs because it works so well. People are more comfortable with this concept of digital signatures digitizing forms. But Martorana says the 21st Century Idea Act guidance actually will help spread these types of ideas, concepts, and requirements more broadly across the entire government. We have extraordinary technology deployed in government, but they are in silos, sometimes in programs that have had funding directly appropriated to it. So they have benefited, that program has benefited, but we have not yet been able to extend that benefit, that that technology innovation across an enterprise, for example, at an agency. So those are opportunities that we see for us thinking about this. What Marjorana really is saying here, and and again, as you heard her say, there's these examples of excellence, but really more agencies need to kind of get on board because this is all really part of amplifying this idea of customer experience. That, that you know came from the executive order that President Biden signed in December 2021. And then all the work that was done during the pandemic, what this can do is really spur that innovation, really push those agencies really much more forward, much more faster. And, and I think it also gives them that idea that how they have to think about where the 21st Century Idea can fit, how they architect it, how they make sure that there's understanding of what the law is asking for. And then, Thomas, as you heard her say, it's all about implementation and make sure it's, it's pushing all boats forward together, right? Rising tide lift all boats. And just a final question, how does this all map to the high-impact service agencies, the HISPs, that are mentioned in the president's management agenda? What the HISPs are doing is is part and parcel to the 21st Century Idea Act. Those are the folks that really have the biggest impact or could have the biggest impact on citizens and the services that the government provides. So I think this necessarily won't impact them any more than it impacts a small agency that only serves a thousand people. The idea here is to to ensure that everyone is on equal footing as they move forward to make citizen services better, 
faster, cheaper, and in the end, Tom, more effective for the people who each agency is trying to serve. And if you're the IRS, you're serving obviously everybody. But if you're the food and safety, you're maybe only looking at certain parts of the food chain that you're trying to serve. So it all really depends. Or the fisheries are serving fishermen and other sure. other seafood providers. So I think all of that is, is really to get the government to walk in lockstep more closely. IRS serves everybody and Social Security. Don't forget the death at the end of the taxes. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still ahead, we continue our series, The Worst Place to Work in the Federal Government. The Bureau of Prisons Employee Union deals with both management and the inmates. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. Bureau of Prisons correctional officers, and nearly everyone is a correctional officer, operate in a crucible. They deal with the bureau management, which has trouble maintaining staffing and measuring its programs, and inmates, and are, well, they're just inmates. Some are beyond redemption, others work to improve their lives. In this, our second interview in our series, The Worst Place to Work in the Federal Government, we hear now from the president of the National Council of Prison Locals, also known as Council 33 of the American Federation of Government Employees, Shane Fossey. Mr. Fossey, good to have you with us. Good morning, Tom. How are you? All right. The Bureau did get the lowest rating in the best places to work. From your standpoint, why is that? What's going on in there? So, you know, Tom, this is not a new revelation, to say the least. It's been an evolution of cultural decline in the Bureau of Prisons. Um, And you can see the, the red flag factors that I call them. Uh, a $2 billion backlog in maintenance repair of the facilities, you know, the COVID crisis, everything pointed to the staffing crisis, which is our biggest issue in in our agency. We just don't have enough correctional officers to supervise the bad guys. That's not an easy job, right? Is one of the reasons because people are just afraid to work in that type of context or that as people come they get law enforcement certification, they move on to maybe more glamorous law enforcement jobs. We see the retention as an issue uh, and recruiting is becoming an issue. I, I think our pay scales have really lagged behind this hot economy that we're in the middle of. Uh, we're not unique to any other profession. We're challenged in that area. But, you know, I have to really emphasize the extraordinary human beings, 35,000 of them, that operate America's federal prisons. And they do such an amazing exemplary job with extremely limited resources. And sometimes shifts can barely be covered then with only 35, because I think there's 40,000 are authorized. But if there's only 35,000 and there's a gap of five or 6,000, this is you know the latest reporting from GAO, then just simply covering shifts is a pretty crucial situation in a federal prison, isn't it? It, it is. And I've worked very closely with Ms. Goodwin and the GAO and some of their reports over the years. And this has been a steady decline since about 2005 when the agency executed the mission critical cuts. But it really kind of pushed us over the cliff, the staffing cuts of 2016, 2017, when we lost collectively 7,000 positions. Currently, there is about 8,000 vacancies from the authorized positions in the Bureau of Prisons. And if you would, just maybe give us a quick picture of uh, the daily life of a corrections officer. How close to the inmates physically are officers? Are they armed? Because that might be dangerous in a prison setting. It's a social situation. It's a law enforcement situation. It's a psychological situation, I would think. You know, our profession is so broadly described. It's, you know, we're not guards, number one. We are correctional officers. 
we deal with real tangible human beings and the 80% we're actively trying to salvage them as human beings and get them back into society as a productive member. The other 20%, quite frankly, you don't want them in society. They're so dangerous. And it's such a balance when you walk around the housing unit. You don't see the Shawshank Redemption version that Hollywood portrays. We're human beings interacting with 150, 200 human beings in a very social setting. Not everybody's secured behind the door. We're out moving around, going to the commissary, to the dining hall. It's really a unique human experience to witness. And I challenge anybody that has the opportunity to experience it for themselves. Yeah. And so there is sometimes physical danger, but then there's also, I mean, the word correction is part of the title of the job. And as you say, there are plenty of people that you feel like you really want to help and want to be helped. Fair? That's a fair assessment. And I can tell you, we've helped more people than we've harmed over the hundred years of the Bureau's evolution. We've made good human beings out of people that made mistakes in their lives and ended up, you know, in a really bad place. Unfortunately, as you navigate this environment, danger lurks around every corner, not just for ourselves, but for the other offenders that live there as well. We're speaking with Shane Fossey. He is president of the National Council of Prison Locals of the American Federation of Government Employees. What do you feel BOP management needs to do to get the staffing at full level and how are relations with the management in general between the corrections officers, the union, and the people running the prisons and running the agency? So at the national level, we've been really focused collectively on hiring. And this has been an issue for us, like I said, for many, many years now. But it's become, you can't hide the statistical data receipt. It's real human costs to a lack of supervision. So we're focusing a lot of funding on recruiting new people into this business. I can tell you it's a good job. It has great benefits. And I think, you know, we're the pinnacle of corrections as an agency. I just did a recent event in Colorado with an assembly of corrections professionals from across the world. And I found very quickly, we're a model for the rest of the world that they, they, we, they follow what we do. So we just have to fix the staffing crisis, which affects everything Tom. Every aspect of our business, if you don't have enough supervision, bad things happen. So if the staffing were to restore to the full allocated authorized staffing and those five or 6,000, 7,000 maybe holes were filled with good employees, would that affect the best places to work score? I absolutely think it will. I, I think the score that you're seeing is a reflection of collective exhaustion. Our officers and our employees, they're tired. They've been holding the line for at least 10 years under extreme conditions. If they hired fully to 100%, you would see a decline in contraband. You would see a decline in violence. You would see a decline in suicide. Like I said, those conditions we're in right now have real human consequences. I imagine seeing or witnessing or being exposed to the violence, say, prisoners among themselves, even though the officer may not be directly involved, that must have a psychological or some kind of debilitating effect just to witness that? That's a fair assessment. Um, sustained exposure to violence or threats of violence for long periods of time like corrections does gave us a prior. A new priority is focusing on employee wellness and you know, trying to prevent or treat post-traumatic stress disorder and things that develop throughout the career. And I think the new director is right on board with employee wellness. What's, in your opinion, the best way to deal with those occasional officers that go off the rails themselves? You know, Tom, I testified in front of the Senate, when, a bad, when we identify a bad egg, get them out of our prisons. 
we don't want them there just as much as society doesn't want them there. They're a decay or a cancer that can affect the entire institution and the level of safety for every employee. So if you're a criminal, you don't belong in this business and you need to go. And what about the issue of hiring with respect to the locale of prisons? That is to say, they're in rural areas, many cases, and they're far away from big population centers. You have a limited pool of people available. How does that affect the recruiting and hiring? So it's it's really hard to attract someone out into, and a lot of our institutions are in rural locations. Uh, we're working on a piece of legislation right now to kind of address that issue because we're competing with that same metropolitan area's pay scale, but we're living so far remote from that area. Most people, we have to incentivize them to move to those remote locations. I mean, what would your selling proposition be to someone who just, say, graduated in a law enforcement or criminal justice program at a college in or near a large metropolitan area to go to a Florence, Colorado, or someplace like that, Allenwood, Pennsylvania, far from Philadelphia or Pittsburgh, whatever. What's the what's the unique selling proposition of the job, do you think? So we have a couple incentives that we've launched. One is a $10,000 sign-on bonus across the country, not just at those locations that you mentioned. We have a recruiting bonus for employees, you know, to... Our best recruiters are our own employees, but we also have location incentives for our most hard to fill locations. Florence as one has a 25% incentive. So unfortunately it's like sticking your fingers in a dam and eventually you run out of fingers and the dam's still cracking. We need to address the pay scale across the country to incentivize corrections to those people. You know, they're, they're working at other employees like Target and Walmart. They're offering so much more on an hourly wage and I think what we're noticing, Tom, the younger generation doesn't understand the tangible benefits of retirement funds and health care like the older workers who did. So I think we need to incentivize them with dollar signs. But what about the job itself that would attract someone to say, I'd like to do this? Is there a calling quality to it or is there something inherently satisfying about this work that you could also try to convince people of? Absolutely, Tom. 30 years in corrections this year, the first thing you notice is a cohesive teamwork or team concept. When something bad happens, you collectively respond and it really leaves an impact on you when you're in trouble and you see 30, 40 of your coworkers responding to help you. Not to mention the real tangible effects of protecting your community. There's this level of service that's so hard to describe until you're actually feeling it yourself. And you mentioned the backlog in maintenance and repair of the facilities. Does that affect only what the prisoners experience, or does that also affect what the staff experiences? So it really affects every aspect of the facility or the multiple facilities. $2 billion backlog in infrastructure repairs. And I'm talking major mold, uh, or, you know, decay of the infrastructure itself. And it affects you mentally as well as physically. You know, there's a lot of offices you can't use because they're infested with mold and you don't have the money to fix it, which is really strange. But I think the mental aspect, that cultural decline that I've described earlier, when you come into work and the place is clean and painted and looks good, your, your mental state's a lot better than when you come in and there's mold and dirt and the walls are falling down. It really has an impact on the collective workforce. And are you hoping that the new director, Ms. Peters, will be there a while because there has been a parade of directors and acting directors over the past several years? There's been no real continuity at the top of BOP. The inconsistency in leadership affects any organization, but it's really critical with our structure. I think I'm on my fifth director now as the national president, and it's a constant relearning process, learning new priorities. 
I'm really hoping Miss Peter sticks around for a while. So far in the honeymoon phase, we're getting along pretty well and we have common focuses. So I think we're moving forward. But as you know, trying to turn a bureaucracy around is like steering an aircraft carrier. Shane Fozzi is president of the National Council of Prison Locals of the American Federation of Government Employees. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. I really appreciate it. And tomorrow in our series, The Worst Place to Work in the Federal Government, we'll hear from a former senior executive service member of the Bureau of Prisons. He's also former warden of its most secure facility. Find all of the interviews in this series at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a default isn't a shutdown, but agencies could treat it that way. But first, when you hear about these new military sunglasses, you're going to want a pair. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. Anyone with so-called transition eyeglass lenses knows they take forever to darken when you go outside and quite a while to lighten up when you go inside. Now photochemical scientists from Bowling Green State University, together with an R&D company, have developed for the Defense Department lenses that go from light to dark or dark to light, literally in the blink of an eye. We get more now from Bowling Green Distinguished Professor Jayaraman Sivaguru. Professor Sivaguru, good to have you on. Good morning. So tell us what you've done here. First of all, tell us for whom this was done and the partnership with industry and the government that is leading to this product. So this technology was developed by a Ohio-based company called Alpha Micron. And the initial project began as a small business technology transfer grant that was awarded to Alpha Micron from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. And it evolved to include three universities from Ohio are involved, Bowling Green State University, Kent State University, and Miami University. After we did the initial project study and feasibility, we were funded OIA Foreign Grant, which is uh, you know Ohio Federal Research Network Grant, which essentially aims to stimulate Ohio's economy through strategic partnership with university and industry collaborations. With the funding from OIFRN, we were able to develop this technology that was initially from the SGTR grant. Got it. And what was the Defense Department seeking, do you think, in the first place? I mean, what's the purpose of this? So the purpose is to leverage uh, the liquid crystal technology that was pioneered by Alpha Micron where you can develop films uh, for eyewear and eye protection that can be electronically limbed. In other words, you know, you can just press a switch and then uh, you can go from completely clear or mostly clear to a dark state so that, you know, the transmission can be modulated. And in the dark state, it meets the requirements for UV protection and so forth that apply to normal sunglasses? Yeah, it essentially become dark, just like how you detail, you know, the transition lenses. So it prevents UV light. And also the eventual idea is, you know, if somebody is shining high intensity light, you know, you are temporarily blinded. So if you just switch it on, essentially that will be prevented. You know, this essentially comes in handy for law enforcement, etc. But it does require the pushing of a physical switch to make it happen? That's correct. You know, that is a button right on one of the arms on the side. The earpiece, uh, I think you know, they the, call that. I think uh, you call what is the stem, the stem of the glasses. So it is on the stem of the glasses, and you essentially press a button, and then it just changes from one state to another state. And is this technology embedded in the lenses, or is it something that is layered on top of an existing lens? 
Uh, no, no, no. Uh, it is essentially liquid crystal technology. So it is part of a film in the lens. So it is essentially the liquid crystal itself serves as a transition between two different states. Got it. And can this be applied to prescription eyewear or simply goggles that would be for someone that's got contacts or 20-20 vision? In principle, it can be done. At least that is my understanding. But, you know, again, you know, once we go towards prescription lenses, it is something, you know, that needs some more development. But you're getting interest from DOD to actually purchase these? So already we did a demonstration about this prototype at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base last fall. We take input from them, you know, how to design these things. There are strict criteria that, you know, we have to satisfy, etc., that is, uh, you know, something which was very valuable to us when we designed this particular prototype. We are speaking with Dr. J. Araman Sivaguru. He's distinguished university professor at Bowling Green State University. And you mentioned also law enforcement has expressed interest in this technology. It's not that they have expressed interest, you know, but this particular technology can be useful to them because, you know, let's say that, you know, somebody is uh, shining a high intense light at your eyes. The temporary blindness can be a big issue. So this particular technology where, you know, you can essentially go to a dark state where, you know, the transmission of light can be completely prevented or, or mostly prevented uh, will help you see through the, uh, that particular aspect. So definitely for first responders, it is something, you know, which might be very handy. Or if you're outside patrolling in the daylight and you have to run into a tunnel or a scurvy looking bar or a cave or something, then you can go to light just as fast. Yes, exactly. So it's a completely transparent state where, you know, instead of a dark mode, you go to the light mode, again, press the same button, it changes to a different mode. So uh, you have the uh, much better transmission, you know, when somebody is venturing into a dark space. And you mentioned this is an STTR program. Tell us who has custody or rights to the intellectual property resulting from this. This technology is, belongs to Alpha Micron, the company. So essentially, they are the one who are awarded this particular grant, ASTTR. And then that grant evolved to this OFRN grant, you know, uh, the Ohio Federal Research Network grants. And uh, they uh, leveraged the expertise of uh, the three Ohio universities, like I mentioned, BJSU, Kent, and Miami University of Ohio, bringing in the expertise of faculty to help them develop this technology. So the technology belongs to the company, yes. And will they license it or otherwise make it available to, you know, people like Maui Jim and Ray-Ban and the popular? I'm not sure about what their plans are, but they do have commercialized these things. Uh, that is something, a uh, question for the company. You know, we have visited the company during our uh, visits there. They have commercialized uh, some of these aspects, so that is a question for the company itself. Yeah. Sure, we'll ask them too, but definitely the military looks like it would like to have this for its operators. Yeah, so that is the uh, you know goal of uh, the program. The stated goal is you know how we can uh, satisfy the criteria set for at Wright Patterson Air Force Base. So, you know, we were able to accomplish uh, what was set as our goal. Now, my understanding of commercial lenses that do this the slower way, however they work, they can also go halfway. Yeah, so the commercial lenses, slightly different technology. You know, they have compounds that, that are coated uh, on the lens. These are called photochromic compounds. In other words, whatever the material that is coated, you know, interacts with light, they will change its shape. And once it changes its shape, it changes its color. It can be from dark to light or light to dark. And uh, one of the ways that it changes is when it encounters UV light, it can go from a light state to a dark state. And then from the dark state to light, light state, you can either reverse it by shining visible light or 
just by cooling it down by heat thermally thermal process so both of them are available so these compounds are called photochromic compounds so this technology is slightly different these are based on liquid crystals and you know they essentially switch back and forth between the two states by electrical signal and with regard to that mechanical switch that someone has to touch to make it change any chance that you're looking into say a light operated switch where if you go outside the light would not a liquid crystal but the light would cause the switch to activate and vice versa one can certainly do it you know you can have a light sensor uh, that can essentially activate the switch and then you know it can go from one state to another state you know it's just a matter of manipulating the electronics you know in terms of you know how one can switch between the two states and looking at the information you've published about this they're pretty snazzy looking i mean they're not just something that looks like you would put it in a laboratory but it looks like something you could actually wear outside and not look so bad in yeah exactly so the initial development you know the final product the prototype looks nice but you know uh, even in the article that we have published uh, in pgsu's website you can see these uh, small square looking models so yep. uh, our development were, were done using those type of uh, model uh, systems where you know you evaluate you know how these things behave upon exposure to light you know what are its stability how can you enhance the stability so those were done like a lab type experiment and then the company has the expertise to translate these things so this is where the partnership between university that can provide fundamental knowledge in these type of systems and get translated to something which is useful for the society you know i, I think it is a fantastic partnership that we were able to uh, sure. you know, utilize here any chance of making an entire automobile windshield out of this stuff you know uh, in the company when we went you know they have some fantastic technology you know they make not only uh, windshields but also windows you know that can be you can essentially command alexa or for example siri and you can say change to this color and it will change the color so the company has the expertise to do it so all right sounds like pretty cool stuff dr j araman sivaguru is distinguished uh, university professor at bowling green state university thanks so much for joining me oh thank you very much uh, it was a pleasure and we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com/federaldrive subscribe to the federal drive wherever you get your podcasts Still to come, a default isn't a shutdown, but agencies could treat it that way. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. That smooshy sound you hear is everyone squirming in their seats as the national debt default looms closer. The weird thing is, the government is fully appropriated for the rest of fiscal 2023, with four months of high spending yet to go. Contractors worry agencies might treat a default as if it were a shutdown, which it isn't. We get more observations now from federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. And Larry, you've seen evidence that agencies are preparing in the way they would prepare for a shutdown, even in the absence of any guidance we're aware of from the White House. Tom, we really have seen that. We've seen agencies do their continuity of operations planning, which on one level they have to do, but they're treating it like a shutdown in that they're trying to decide who's essential, who's non-essential. And as you pointed out, look, everybody's been appropriated for the year. Now, paying bills is another area than appropriations, but it's not like we don't have an appropriated budget. It's not like there's not money that not only can be spent, Tom, but there's a lot of precedent out there in the legal department that says 
it needs to be spent during the fiscal year. And while there may be some questions about what bills people can pay and where the expenses are going to go, this is not the same thing as a non-appropriated funds event. And you really need to have an appreciation for that and provide the right guidance to agencies so they can in turn provide the right guidance to their contractors. Yeah, and contractors, though, feel that things could stop, but we really don't know what it is that would be prioritized. I think it's the default opinion seems to be coming around that Social Security expenditures or maybe Medicare or something that are the so-called non-discretionary spending would be halted because Congress could use those funds to cover the debt-related costs. Well, Social Security, Medicare, and service on the national debt are so-called mandatory spending. And mandatory means just that, means you have to spend money on them. By the way, those are spending programs that are not really impacted by not having an appropriation. They go on to function just as they always do. And I suspect they would under any type of debt default. Congress would have some serious explaining to do if they decided to change mandatory spending rules at the 11th hour to divert money and pay debt-related expenditures rather than send out Social Security checks. More likely, Tom, I think we're going to find that Congress makes cuts in the non-discretionary money, that is, the money that goes to fund government acquisitions, among other things. That's a smaller portion of federal spending, but nevertheless, it's the part that is touchable by a downturn, by a potential budget ceiling default, money that is in the pipeline or might be paid to contractors. You know, that's going to be selectively paid depending on the length and severity of any default. So already, Tom, we're starting to see anecdotal evidence of agencies slowing down their buying habits right at a time of year when you'd expect them to be going up. Uh, As you mentioned at the intro, we're into the third quarter now, the fourth quarter is right around the corner. Uh, This is when a lot of government business gets done, and yet there's some hesitancy in part of the market to move forward with major acquisitions because people don't know if they're going to be going home for a while. They don't want to, on the government side, award a contract if they're not sure they're going to be able to pay for it. We're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And, of course, this is all unknowable, and we just have to wait and see what our political leadership and their wisdom comes up with. But I wanted to ask you about the IDIQ landscape. You were commenting this week that these just seem to be ever mired in protests, sometimes even before the solicitation and sometimes between solicitation and selection of awardees, let alone once it's awarded, the protests and earlier upstream all the time. Tom, right. And as you know, I'm a big advocate of indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contracting. I've spent much of my professional career in this world, whether it's with the GSA schedules program or another type of government-wide acquisition contract. I'm generally a big supporter of IDIQ contracting. And yet we do have to address the reality right now. And the reality is that This is a very protest-laden way of doing government business, particularly when an agency is trying to put an acquisition together. There are protests at the pre-RFP stage. After the RFP is issued, there are protests there that often stop a procurement cold until they can be resolved. And if they can't be resolved, 
uh, which was the case recently in one of GSA's protest cases in Polaris, then you have to go back to the drawing board. And even if you get to the award phase, as NIH is finding out in their CIOSP4 contract, there are protests that come after award that push the start of the new program even further to the right. And in the meantime, a whole lot of companies are spending a whole lot of money on bid and proposal dollars. The agency is spending a lot of time and resources putting contracts together and then defending protests at various protest venues, Tom. The whole thing is once an IDIQ contract is in place, it's a nice, fast, efficient way for government agencies to make a number of buys. There's all kinds of socioeconomic designations that typically go along with this type of contracting. But the road to get to that point is progressively covered in protest potholes. And the sad thing is the agencies that issue these, NIH, GSA principally, and NASA, a couple of others, they use these as experimental zones. We have seen many innovations in procurement, such as task order level pricing, which has been suspended by a court decision at the moment. And it makes you wonder why agencies would continue to try to innovate in an area that needs innovation when everything gets mired down this way. I couldn't agree more. I think that if I'm GSA, particularly, I have to take a really hard look to see whether or not it's even worth my time and resources to try to come up with another small business IT-focused IDIQ contract. They've tried twice now, Tom, and both times those attempts have been torpedoed by protests. As you mentioned, most recently, GSA is trying to be innovative on Polaris, and somebody took issue with not having contract-level pricing. Generally, the vendor community was excited about the prospect of not having contract-level pricing for a number of reasons, not the least of which is the contract management burden goes way down if you're not submitting price information up front to GSA in order to justify contract-level pricing before you are eligible for an award. But we didn't get that on Polaris. Somebody protested and the judge took a very narrow reading of the rule, didn't like the exceptions that GSA had tried to carve out for itself. Ultimately, you have to look, if I'm GSA, I'm looking at the schedules program. I'm looking at Alliant 2 with Alliant 3 coming right down behind it, which is a much larger program that's going to take my resources. I've got 8A stars and I've got the veterans contract in place, all of which are good IT vehicles. And I have to ask myself if I need to spend another two years trying to get an IT small business contract up and running or whether I'm just better off strengthening the programs I've got and going with those. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. As always, thanks so much. Tom, thank you very much, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The 2023 edition of our May We Say Thank You campaign continues in support of Public Service Recognition Week earlier and Military Appreciation Month. You can send a thank you e-card to a fellow federal employee or a service member or a customer if you're a contractor. Visit federalnewsnetwork.com and click May We Say Thank You. Sponsored by NARF. 57 past the hour. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin.
And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, May 23rd, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, we continue our series, The Worst Place to Work in the Federal Government. The Bureau of Prisons Employees Union deals with both management and the inmates. Plus, when you hear about these new military sunglasses, you're going to want a pair. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Defense Department's Transition Assistance Program, known as TAP, helps service members getting ready to leave the military. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr reports the program is not working as well as its managers think it should, and Alexandra joins me in studio. Alex, what is the problem with TAP? Well, the basic problem is they don't feel like people who need it are using it as much as they should. There's a lot of concern that some of the members who get out of the service have trouble getting jobs. There's some homeless problems. There's mental illness problems. Uh, homeless veterans make up nearly 10% of the country's homeless population. And of the 250,000 unemployed vets last year, 54 were prime, were prime working ages of 25 to 54. So the Defense Department really wants to get to that and, and the TAP program is a combination of an of an effort between the Department of Labor, the Department of Defense, and the Department of Veterans Affairs. So they've got this program going, and there are some rules that they have to abide by set by Congress. One of them is that people have to start this at least a year in advance. They don't. Uh, so last Wednesday, there was a House Committee on Veteran Affairs that took up the matter and tried to get some resolution on why isn't it happening, why isn't it happening as well as it should be. Here's the committee's chairman, Congressman Derek Von Orden of Wisconsin. We've heard of the need for more mental health counseling. We've heard of the need for more individualized training sessions. And we've heard of the need for a warm handoff for service members that are at risk of being homeless and uh, food insecure. We need to be creating more connections like these for our service members. We need to ensure that the transition process is started when it is legally required to ensure service members can take advantage of all the tools that are offered to them. Well, the question is, does everyone actually need to start the process a year in advance? I mean, if you've got a vice presidency lined up for, you know, Booz Allen or Lighthouse or something, maybe maybe you don't. I think that's exactly the important question. And so the way they have it set up is they when you first go and you do a self-assessment and they figure out what, what your plan is, they put you in three categories. They're, they're called tiers. First tier, people are have jobs lined up. They have family support. They're going to go rocket in the civilian world. Then there's a middle tier that maybe doesn't have as quite a good setup, but they've got some possibilities. Third tier candidates are people who are really at risk of food insecurity, of homelessness. They really need, they need the help from this program. So there are a couple different parts of the course, there, and there are two classes. One is a two-day class, and it goes through some basics of how you get a job, what you do to get a job, how you write a resume. And then there's a three-day course, and the three-day course goes into more in-depth scenarios about getting a job. Well, what they were finding is that while lots of people go to the two-day course, the three-day course is just not as well attended. Last December, the Government Accountability Office published a report about TAP. They found some of these problems. Here's Don Locke, the Director of Strategic Studies at GAO. The services waived the two-day courses requirement for 53% of service members. That's a little more than 64,000 men and women. 
Notably, 22% of Tier 3 service members did not attend a two-day class as required. Now keep in mind, the Tier 3 service members are those who are most vulnerable for transition challenges, and nearly a quarter of them are not taking the two-day class. I guess I'm trying to get my head around why you need to start a year in advance for a two-day class. But that aside, how do they, in the military, propose to solve this problem to get people to the three-day class in plenty of time to plan their lives? Well, it's not just the, the two classes. It's a whole series of counseling and transitioning and figuring out how to do things. Also, you know, the benefits are a little complicated. And if you don't know how to navigate the benefit system, then you're not likely to get them. So it's really important that they train you what you're eligible for, if you're eligible for tuition assistance or, you know, what things you can get so that when you get out, you have those things available to you. And those that 22% of Tier 3 people not taking that class, that's 11,000 service members who really needed that help and weren't getting it. The GAO says the Defense Department hasn't really done any studies on how this program works in the end. They've done some studies on people attending the classes, but not the results once they get out into the civilian world. So one of the things the committee wants them to do is find some way to quantify their success and are they doing it right or are they not? And then the other thing is there's a lot of discussion about holding leaders, military leaders responsible for the attendance of service members in their command. If people aren't going to things, obviously that in, in some way is a command decision. You know, I get the sense that there are a certain portion of service members who come into the military because that's their main option in life as they see it. And they might be from areas where there are not so much opportunities or where the educational background hasn't been as strong or they might come from an impoverished background and the military is a way out, but they don't come with the tools needed to do life planning beyond that. And so even though they might have had a good time in the military, a good period, they still don't have the tools for the rest of life, unlike someone that might have come in through ROTC or a more privileged, if you will, type of background. Well, I think that's true. And the other thing is anyone who changes jobs with a dramatic change of job culture or a move across the country, if you think about what they're leaving, they're leaving a very stable system where they shop at the PX and they have these benefits and this post and all their friends who they've known for as long as they've been in the service. And they're walking away from all that. So I think it's it. It's hard if you don't have the skills, but it's also sort of a frightening thing to do, and the military is trying to close that gap a little for them. The accountability piece is something that they really want to address, and here's Don Locke talking about that. We did not look into data on commander accountability, but what we did hear across the services and in the installations we visited, that commanders are not being held accountable. So it was suggested to us ways that could this could be improved by, for example, incorporating TAP into commander performance metrics because we know what gets measured is what gets done. And the other unstated thing in all of this, I think, Alex, is the fact that for a commander, they're concerned with performance, readiness, and otherwise good qualities of the troops they have under their command. And once someone is on their way out, hey, that's not my problem anymore. That guy is now a veteran. That gal is now a veteran. And so really, why should that be a high, just to play devil's advocate for a given commander, what's the difference when someone's leaving, they're gone? Well, that's exactly right, and that is part of what, what's happening. And uh, Congressman Van Orden had suggested that promotions be held up if these wickets weren't met. But in, in backtracking on that a little bit, it's also important to note that some of these statistics they have come from when COVID restrictions were in place. And these classes were in bricks-and-mortar classrooms, and all of a sudden they didn't have that ability. So that also really hurt their ability to run the classes. 
All right. So they're going to maybe put in some of these measures then for commanders and to make sure that people get the whole program for its entire duration. That's what they're saying. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, we continue our series, The Worst Place to Work in the Federal Government. The Bureau of Prisons Employee Union deals with both management and the inmates. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.